Hello and welcome to Navara FM, brought to you by Navara Media and broadcast live on Resonance 104.4 FM, London's finest and most consistently mind-expanding of radio stations. I am James Butler and you will be relieved to learn that although Brexit continues in its endless refractory way, we will be leaving it for the time being to think about other, perhaps more important things. And this week's topic, I think, couldn't be more important or more foundational to the way we live today. It's hard to open any magazine or bien-pensant publication without finding some disquisition on the algorithm, uh, the ways in which computerized management affects and constrains our choices, corrupts our minds, opens us to the singularity or degrades our intellectual capacity and encourages our very worst instincts. One might leave those articles none the wiser about what the algorithm does and, well, what the algorithm is. I'm joined in the studio today by a colleague and comrade, Craig Gent, who is also the eminence grise behind the day-to-day running of (laughs) Navarra Media and is in many ways responsible for the project's continued growth over the last few years. Sorry, everyone. (laughs) But alongside all of that, and you may think that's enough work for any (laughs) ordinary human being, he's also completed a PhD on algorithmic management and workplace resistance, i.e. he has got down into the nitty-gritty of what those changes in technology actually mean and do. Craig, welcome to the show. It's good to be here. Very good. (laughs) So let me jump in and ask um, that basic but perhaps uh, difficult question. What is an algorithm? Why does it matter? Mm, Well, that's a good question. Um, Obviously, in the most basic form, an algorithm is a, let's say, technical object. Um, It's a a set of rules, usually written in code, um, that tell you you unambiguously how to solve a problem. Uh, But of course, it's a lot more than that as well. Um, An algorithm is a is really a sort of complex social system, a complex socio-technical system even, um, that involves human and computational decisions. Um, and the way that algorithms are often for- thought about in uh, algorithmically managed workplaces is uh, as, a, as an adversary, as a, as a sort of vector of authority within uh, the work relation. Um, and... Uh, I think the reason it's it's important uh, to think about it is because algorithms currently, as you said in the introduction, have a political currency um, that uh, is, is is not really sort of going going anywhere. Mm. So, although I, you know it'd be very reductionist to think of algorithms just as sort of like you know lines of code. Code is essentially the material that makes up algorithms. Uh, but really, along with this sort of vague notion of the system. Um, it's a, it's a sort of a political object to mm-hmm. contend with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so, so one of the things that I think is very difficult when thinking about this stuff is how evanescent the uh, algorithm itself seems to be, right? Because at base, you know, and I was doing some reading around this, and at base you have you know, these, these definitions which tell you very little, right? So you know, mathematical operation that, that generates mm-hmm. certain rules or, or certain decisions. And there's a, a nice piece from a UCLA theorist whose name currently escapes me that points out, you know, a recipe could be an algorithm, right? Like, mm-hmm. uh, you could think of it in, in those terms. You know, a, a, a series of directions to, to someone's house could be an algorithm. But obviously in, in a kind of computer science context, things do get a little more complicated than that, right? So you have 
you know, obviously a, a series of, of potential uh, operation and or not, et cetera, et cetera. These are the kind of very foundations the code is built on. And then, you know, it, it seems to go in several ways, right? And it, it's the foundation of, you know, one workplaces in which there's actually quite a significant amount of human involvement. So this is one thing that perhaps is worth expanding on is actually we often think about algorithms as these things that are purely matters of machine learning, right? That they have these capacities to uh, refine themselves or learn from the kind of operations that they carry out and learn they're used in a quite expansive sense. But actually there's quite a lot of human input at the base of it, right? Yeah, totally. So Nick Siever has this idea that if uh, if when looking at an algorithm, you basically sort of see a feedback loop, and there are no um, no humans within it, then you just need a bigger loop because there are going to be humans in there along the way. Um, I think that the question of this raises the question of what seeing an algorithm is about and what it can do. Um, I think at the minute, particularly around ideas of algorithmic management within work, there's um, it's kind of it's quite a sort of like liberal preoccupation with like transparency in the algorithm, mm-hmm. and I would kind of contend that well, if we could see the algorithms, what is it we we think we would see? And I think we probably wouldn't see, you know, within the sort of black box of the algorithm, um, sort of what we're hoping to. I, I don't think that we'll, we'll, you know, by opening the sort of black box of of algorithms, see, uh, you know, the sort of a. Uh, sort of mystic inner workings of power relations within like computationally mm-hmm. dependent workplaces. Right. So, so I mean, this is, I, mean, I think this is the thing that we will come back to again and again, you know, throughout the course of the show, that there is this problem about uh, how to conceptualise, uh, you know, what's going on in front of you and, you know, actually being able to see what's actually there is often quite difficult. Um, you know, so so uh, you know th- there is, I think, a, a compulsion, and, and perhaps it's one of the reasons that you know a lot of these kind of articles are produced on this stuff. That, that there's a compulsion to try to understand this stuff, but like actually, you know, we, we, you know, one sees very you know very little about you know the way in which these actually work materially in the workplace. I think, in particular, but elsewhere as well, mm-hmm. just by uh, understanding the kind of computational basis of it. Um, so, so I guess I, maybe then, you know, it, it, we should zoom in then down to the question of how this is applied. So obviously we have on top of this, you know, algorithmic uh, development, right? The, these are, you know, the algorithm is deployed in various places, right? It's not just in the workplace. It's, you know, and, and, and perhaps, you know, we can come on to think about that because, you know, you have, you know, a, a flurry of work at the moment about the deployment of kind of computational solutions elsewhere. We might think about how these like extremely large entities are transforming the very structure uh, of human life. But but let's start in the hidden abode, uh, <laughs> as Uncle Karl Marx would say. Yeah, the hidden abode of production. And tell me then, what what sectors of the economy has uh, this technique of algorithmic management been deployed in, uh, and what have its effects been? Yeah, so um, the contemporary focus around algorithmic management is very much within, for example, the gig economy. Um, algorithmic management as a term was kind of put on the map by uh, an article a few years back by um, Min Kyung Lee and some other authors um, in relation to a study of Uber and Lyft. Um, and this has been picked up by Alex Rosenblatt in her work on Uber as well. Um, however, um, 
although uh, within that sector, algorithmic management speaks to this kind of concern about a whole sort of like tangled web of, of issues around precariousness and uh, new forms of management and empl- employment contract types and, and the rest of it. You know, algorithmic management uh, is seen in all sorts of sectors. Uh, it's it's very common in journalism nowadays, uh, sort of, you know, workplaces that you traditionally conceive of as being kind of like white collar. Um, one thing that fascinates me is how quickly algorithmic management has been adopted by the likes of McDonald's. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, nowadays McDonald's workers sort of work by the dashboard um, and uh, fulfill orders based on, on uh, you know, what they're seeing on computer screens. You see this in cafes as well. Um, and I guess the area that I look at in particular would be around sort of like distribution and like logistical hubs as well. Um, because what algorithmic management brings is um, this uh, adaptivity, this sort of sensitivity to like real-time processes mm-hmm. um, and is able to sort of manage workers accordingly in real time based on the kind of like logistical needs of a particular uh, work process. So tell, me, tell me about what that means specifically or what the changes brought in. Let's take something like a McDonald's, right? So what does the introduction of algorithmic management mean there? Because is it, is it just that there is, uh, you know, a customer goes in and inputs an order on a computer screen and then that's communicated to the workers? Or is there a predictive capacity involved, for instance? So do you have orders prepared in advance that, that, that the machine has learned that, that, say, at 1 p.m. there might be a spike in this kind of order, so you have certain things prepared in advance? And, and, and what effect does that have on the way in which people work? It means those things, but it also means that um, uh, the the progress of workers in fulfilling those orders can also be uh, tracked and monitored within the system. Um, and so it, it's, it's, there's much more to it than just, uh, you know, oh, the, the orders rather than being sort of barked from the person at front of house to the person at back of, you know, rear of house, um, are just being sort of like mediated by a computer screen. Uh, you know, plays a role within the sort of logistical functioning of a of a McDonald's, precisely like you say, so you know, uh, stock stock keeping and um, knowing when to prepare extra things or, or the best way to sort of optimize when you know cookers are going to be in use or the rest of it. But it also has this role within, if you like, the sort of like managerial disciplinary framework of of the work process, that uh, the way that workers are are, are interacting uh, with the work process in relation to what the algorithmic system is is uh, is telling them to do, um, is, uh, is is sort of feeding back into like a performance management um, that is much more sort of finely grained, real time, heavily quantified <coughs> than perhaps we've seen in the past. Right. So so the the things that are feeding into to the algorithm, as it were, are not just you know traditional kind of product inputs. And then sort of labour happens somewhere, and then you get get output. So like the entire process then feeds in feeds into this this thing. I suppose the the obvious question that that then arises is so what you might expect is you know with the de- development of of you know algorithms, but also sort of uh, you know productive machines, is that the entire process would be automated, right? But there's a lot of human. In this process, right? So yeah. why 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 is that? Why 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 is it that that you know, say, big capital like McDonald's, 
uh, you know, keeps so much human in, in, in the process? Well, the really short answer is because it's a lot cheaper. Yeah. You know, so, um, you know, I've looked quite a lot at places like, say, Amazon, and everyone will have seen on Facebook or wherever, you know, uh, these sorts of visions of the future with Amazon robots like whizzing around a kind of empty, workerless uh, factory floor and just like taking orders to a, a static worker who never has to sort of, you know, put one foot in front of the other. And this exists in like, you know, <laughs> Five fulfillment centers probably in the world. I mean, more than that. Mm-hmm. But this is like that's like highly experimental. Like that's that's really the cutting edge. It's kind of like when Amazon tells you they're delivering all the packages by drones now. I yeah. mean, they can show you a video to show that. But like, when has everyone anyone received a, a thing like that? So you know, we can't take them at the word on that. Long and short is that it's much cheaper to have workers do it. You can mm-hmm. have high turnover. Um, plug workers into into the system that's kind of continuously running that has a sort of like a quote-unquote sort of like mind of its own. Um, and within that within that context, you know, workers become almost like modular components that can be sort mm. of bolted into a, into a system that has, has its own logic. Um, I think as well, the thing about... Apart from saying just just the cost of of automating things, I tend to think of automation as being like um, uh, it, it's a way of um, producing something um, or, or like producing an outcome, um, you know, without uh, without humans doing it. Where where algorithmic management uh, sort of differs from that a little bit is that it's, it's able to kind of manage the way that people do the work. Mm-hmm. Um, an algorithmic management system is not just counting kind of what is being produced, but it's it's running all the time. There's always this temporal component mm-hmm. to it. Um, you're always on the clock with an algorithmic management system, um, and in that sense, there are sort of like greater levels of optimization that can that can be sort of sought out. Mm-hmm. What does optimization mean there? <laughs> um, what does optimization mean there? Um, is it just you know maybe cutting a worker's hours down by say 0.3% or you know shedding a worker over this amount of time or maybe concentrating labour in one area is it what kind of uh, because obviously, in one sense, like optimization is very simple from from a, a kind of zoned out point of view. Like uh, less, you know, uh, less expense, more profit. But on the ground, what effect does that kind of calculation? Okay, have? so take a place like a like an Amazon warehouse. Uh-huh. Okay, and the way optimization works there, it's it's not just the fact that they're trying to get the most orders out within the quickest amount of time. That is a component as well. But, um, you know, within distribution hubs, you have all sorts of factors. So when, um, you know, when your Tesco delivery comes, you've ordered a particular time slot. It's not just they're trying to get it to you as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. You know, people have different delivery preferences or or whatever, or maybe different goods have got to be compiled into the same box in the case of Amazon. So there are various sort of components that are like going into logistical process. And so optimization, I think, is, is also about creating this kind of I guess what I call like an interface effect where the different components of a logistical process are, are being as closely aligned to each other as possible in an adaptive way in real time. And and on the ground, what this looks like, you know, without it seeming too sort of like 
abstract. On one, on, one hand, on one hand, it is operating at this abstract level, and you can't kind of avoid that within like a logistical process. Mm-hmm. You've got so many components going on. You're, you're trying to sort of get this like harmonization going across, you know, sometimes maybe even across countries. Mm. Um, on the ground, what that might look like is that uh, you're actual workload and your workflow is being governed according to um, logics that are kind of out of your immediate uh, view mm-hmm. and control. Uh, so right down to how long you've got to pick the next order and down to the route you're going to take in order to get there. Um, in an Amazon warehouse, for example, um, Although it is the case, you know, it's documented that often Amazon workers might have to like, you know, run somewhere really far away in 10 seconds. That shouldn't be the case. It should be the case that they're, they're generally going to pick something within the eye line. It should be the case that they're actually not going to see any other worker while they're doing it because no one's going to bump into each other. And so the way that even the, the very movements of workers through space is being organized uh, is, is part of this, this effect of trying to create this kind of like general like optimization of the system. Yeah, I mean, listeners can't see my face there, but I sort of grimaced at the sort of uh, so pervasive a kind of bodily control uh, dictated by a completely invisible and an alien power it's like so it, it to me is so horrifying um that and 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 uh inhuman that i find it sort of very difficult to contemplate um and it reminds me you know it reminds me it's just um you know of how of those chapters it's for perhaps very obvious reference those chapters in in marx's capital which are actually just great and lengthy descriptions of um, you know the the sheer physical torture of the working day in uh, in the factories of the nineteenth century, and the the, the, in, the English factories of the nineteenth century in particular. Um, you know, and the, the chapter on the working day, right? Like these these the imposition of of, of time uh, on, on the human body, and these these kind of uh, you know sheer uh, violence done to to, to to human beings conceived simply as labor power right yeah like, so this is you know it's obviously in some sense a kind of long story um but taking a particularly grim form perhaps in in this sense because at least in you know in, in, in you know you have a there was there would be a logic to the factory which would be at least in some sense comprehensible um to to to, to a human mind um, perhaps that's no longer the case in, 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 in these instances? Well, I think there's a little sort of two things going on in what you say. So one thing is that any managerial process, we might even say like the raison d'etre of, like, uh, of, of, sort of management per se, is overcoming the sort of central problem that labor power uh, poses for, for capitalism. Um, so Harry Braverman calls this the, the indeterminacy of labor power and uh, the autonomist uh, Raniero Panzieri refers to it as the problem of achieving certainty of result within the labor process. Mm-hmm. And what this really means is uh, that, okay, so back to sort of the way that Marx might talk about these yeah. things. When the, when the capitalist pr- uh, purchases labor power, he and it's usually he mm-hmm. is uh, is purchasing a commodity that is unlike, arguably, any other. Mm-hmm. Um, in that, labour power is a potential, and once purchased, it has to be actualised. And uh, this is a sort of to achieve certainty of, of result, and that's you know to uh, achieve um, 
the desired output and the desired sort of profit margins and the rest of it. Um, and uh, this is a sort of fundamental problem for management, and maybe we'll get into later. Mm -hmm. There are various different ways that throughout the history of management, uh, managers, management theorists, engineers, they sometimes call themselves just capitalists. <laughs> like, you know, there are all sorts of pioneers, um, gurus. Yes, you know, they the, do like the, the they, they, they come up with titles. various names for various sort of waves of them. But uh, they come up with various ways to try and kind of do this essential thing. This is kind of like the, the essential algorithm, let's say, of a sort of managerial labor relationship. Mm -hmm. um, but there's another thing going on as well, which is that um, uh, the, the imposition of, of algorithmic management within um, a workplace, and I want to go back to the, the bit where you said about it being very sort of like pervasive mm -hmm. and bodily and the rest of it, um, it is not just a sort of like a, like a mere sort of like calculation that's happening. There are almost sort of like psychosocial like dimensions to like this this type of, mm -hmm. of power relation. Mm -hmm. um, so one example, um, in a lot of algorith algorithmically managed workplaces, uh, and one thing we haven't talked about yet is is that people work with devices. Mm. So like usually a handheld computational device, let's say, in the case of a delivery driver, it's an app. In the case of like an Amazon worker, it's um, sometimes a scan gun or sometimes a, what's called a wristwatch, which is actually like a you know, massive mini tablet that you put on the on your forearm and then probably has like a scanner attached to your finger so that you don't even have to put it down when you pick up boxes. James is cringing right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very, very bodily. Yeah. Um, uh, and um, th these kinds of uh, devices um, encourage a kind of uh, temporal discipline that is is sort of very like highly embodied. Mm -hmm. um, so, in my work, I talk about this in relation to workflow. Um, flow is like this interesting idea that you get like within psychology, and you know a lot of people talk about it in terms of like positive ways, like uh, being in creative flow, mm -hmm, for example. Mm -hmm. um, my uh, apart from Var FM, my favorite podcast <laughs> is the Blind Boy <laughs> podcast, <laughs> and Blind Boy. Uh, often talks about uh, being in sort of like a in a state of flow and that being sort of like the optimal mm -hmm. like creative um, moment. Let's say uh, you have something similar that goes on within a lot of workplaces as well. Uh, you have this sort of like cultivation of a flow that is is much more akin to the, the flow experienced by say like compulsive uh, gamblers. Mm -hmm. And so N Natasha Dalshul in her um, in her very large study of uh, Las Vegas um, uh, slot machine gamblers talks about this like temporal discipline that's that's like highly embodied and there's a sort of like embodied relation with like the the sort of like the computational device that has been um it's been in engineered in such a way that uh, uh this like highly like in monetary terms sort of like productive like relationship can be sort of like cultivated mm -hmm. um and increasingly within algorithmically managed workplaces, this happens in ways that, are, yeah, they're highly pervasive, but within the workplace, they can seem kind of mundane. Mm. Uh, and that's maybe one of like, the scary things about mm. them. So, you know, you were sort of cringing before. One of the, So there are two new patents that, that Amazon has uh, applied for, and it's, uh, they sort of came out um, 
uh, last year sometime and, and it's caused a bit of a stir. One of them is for uh, what are called haptic feedback bracelets. Uh, so basically these are kind of like uh, shackles <laughs> that you wear. <laughs> and so instead of having a scan gun, you don't have to carry a scan gun uh-huh. and, and lug that around and, and think about it. You don't even have to look at the screen anymore and the screen's not telling you what to do. Instead what's going to happen is uh, these... Uh, uh, wristbands, bracelets, shackles. Um, we're going to guide you round uh, the stacks of an Amazon warehouse uh, by uh, sort of like vibrating and buzzing you, and giving, so you, these sorts of, giving you sort of shocks when you're when you're. <laughs> they're castle prods. They're like they're castle prods you wear on your wrists. <laughs> yes, basically, <laughs> uh, to, to, to to you know guide you quote unquote to the to, to the right items. Uh, another one is. Um, uh, augmented reality uh, goggles. Uh, you'd like these. James is shaking his head again. And um, these are basically fitted with a camera so that anything uh, you see, the, uh, 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 the, the system also sees. And um, the idea would be that the, the workplace is completely tagged up with QR codes. Every shelf, every bay, uh, on the floor, um, on the sides of, of stacks, on the ceiling, or, or wherever, um, and if, if as long as the QR codes within your eyesight, then the goggles kind of know where they are within the system. And then, very Terminator-like, they can display uh, both the directions. You know, go down there and to the left, like like a sat nav, um, and then they can sort of like you know flash for you where the item is or should be. Uh, on the shelf, and so you can't even sort of like close your eyes to to sort of sh- shut the system off. This uh, is hell. I mean, this is a vision of hell. Um, you know, but, but, I, they, but they would just say, "Well, this is you know a more convenient replacement for a scan gun because scan guns, um, you know, are, are their own s- sort of hell." You know, this is yeah, all facilitated yeah, yeah, sure, by sure, barcode sure. technology, which is like the most mundane technology anyone can think of, but is is so effective mm, like mm, for this reason yeah 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 yeah. i mean you know yeah sure i mean you have these like extremely variegated you know forms of information display which are, are not processable by human mind but are processable by 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 uh you know com- com- computation sure absolutely and, you know, and and maybe there is something here we could say about like the the, the kind of social training that's involved you know, this sounds like a video game to me like go, go and pick mm. up the flashing object uh, you know, uh, your controller will rumble if you know, this shows my age, by the way. Um, your controller <laughs> will rumble if you're going the wrong way or the right way or whatever. Um, but, but you know, I mean, there is some, there is something here that, that you know, the increasing virtualization uh, of social processes, whatever. Um, but it does sound like hell to me, and it sounds, it sounds, you know, actually, honestly, very, very terrifying. Um, so there are kind of like two questions that I think arise from what you're saying. Um, one and like maybe the, the 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 most obvious one is in so totalized a workplace, right? And so in one in which kind of management discipline is so so complete. Uh, what 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 scope is there? What are the practices of resistance, right? Because you know we we know as a, if you want an iron law about the workplace is that there is resistance to management uh-huh. uh, discipline. That is one thing that, that will give me hope here. So, so what should I be looking at? I hope we'll come to the second question in a bit. What, should, what, what, what will give me some hope here in terms of, uh, in terms of resistance? So I think the, the really important thing is, is to never really take technologies like at their word. 
and this happens a lot. Mm-hmm. And it's easy to do so yeah. because, you know, I've just sat here and said this thing about the haptic feedback bracelets and the, the, the uh, AR goggles. And, like, of course they're intended to kind of, like, be totalizing, that there's, there's a political will that's kind of, like, underpinning these, these technologies. Um, but as with any sort of strategy... Uh, it's uh, what's the the quote? Is it um, who's the war studies guy? Klaus Clausewitz. You know that, that's, that when strategies kind of make contact with reality, you know they really sort yeah. of like hold up in a, yeah, an exact yeah, yeah. way, and you know that they, they they have sort of modifications and, and stuff along the way, but they come into uh, unexpected challenges, and the perpetual unexpected challenge, or well expected challenge, but the perpetual sort of challenge of of any sort of. Um, workplace is labor and labor power so um i think uh yeah we, sh- we shouldn't kind of take the sort of totalizing sort of like component at, at its words basically mm-hmm. um and fortunately uh and you know as, as you would expect but you have to sort of look for it resistance does take place in algorithmically managed workplaces and it takes place in very sort of interesting ways um so to give a couple of examples um one workplace i've looked at uh workers were um kind of like embarking on a uh if you like a sort of a quest of rule discovery about their devices um their devices are kind of they're interesting because uh you know it's something you carry around every day and in many ways, this is kind of like the front line of, of management or your interaction with like management and, and the system. You know, it tells you what to do and where to go and, and how to do it and maybe even how long you've got to do it and the rest of it. And you spend more time with it than you do with any other colleague, uh, whether it's a supervisor or a fellow worker. Um, but through uh, this kind of like continued like acquaintance with a device, uh, people can begin to find out what the affordances are that allow them to kind of make an easier life for themselves. So these often take place in you know what seem like quite novel ways, right? But um, things like uh, one person I spoke to was um, working in a supermarket, like online shop shopping department. You know, so you order from uh, your supermarket, and someone's going to go around the actual store and and, and pick up the the stuff for you. Um, in the past workers have been able to kind of take their breaks when they wanted. Taking a break would mean that you just kind of like tell the device that you're taking a break now and it will pause everything for you and take you out the productivity system and whatever. With the introduction of a new system, uh, that was no longer the case. And so workers would have to finish their, their shop uh, before they could go anywhere. And uh, this particular worker found out that they could um, uh, log into... Another device, which is something that you would sometimes have to do if the uh, battery pack on your first device was running low, you'd have to sort of switch the shop over to another device. Mm-hmm. But on uh, logging into the new device, it would say continue shop or finish shop. And so one day this worker said, mm, finish shop, please. <laughs> and uh, it said, okay, finish shop. And they're like, oh, all right, off I go then. And then what happened in that case, because it's an algorithmically managed system, is that, you know, the the uh, the um, uh, the items in that shop will be redistributed uh, within the workplace, mm-hmm. but they're kind of no longer your problem mm-hmm. uh, as far as that worker sees mm-hmm. it. Um, a- another uh, another workplace, someone 
uh, was often involved with making sort of like intentional mistakes. And so uh, they'd, they'd realized basically that when uh, an item isn't there and you do, um, you know, you sort of tell the system, even though the system might think that the item's there, say Marmite, mm-hmm. and you say Marmite's not there, um, I've chosen Vegemite instead and you get some discretion in what you choose mm-hmm. they might suggest something but you know you, you can get to choose what's going to be appropriate um what that will do is anyone else who was gonna have marmite on their uh, on, on their on their shop uh, will automatically have it replaced with vegemite they will never know that they were meant to choose marmite in the first place um and it, it will sort of update and what this particular worker decided to do was said, well star wars rogue one uh, is great. Everyone should see it. And so any time that anyone ordered a DVD, they said it's not there, but Star, Star Wars Rogue One <laughs> is. Um, you know, it's a, it's a family film, it's Disney or whatever. It fits into a lot mm-hmm. of broad categories. There's a lot of logic. If anyone said, oh, why have you chosen that, uh, as, as, as to why you might have chosen it. Um, and for them, you know, this is just kind of like a bit of mischief, mm-hmm. really. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the breaks is maybe a bit more serious, but it's yeah, mischief. Yeah, yeah. And I sort of said, well, you, you know, what's what's the... Like why you know why are you doing this? Yeah. Like are you just sort of like dedicated saboteur or or, or or whatever? You know, it seems quite individualistic. And this person was like, well, you know, in all seriousness, although we laugh and joke about it, and we did, um, this is about dignity. I'm being paid minimum wage. If I'm being paid minimum wage, I'm going to make my time worth a bit more, and that's in my interest to do so. Mm. And and it's true. Um, one thing that's interesting about uh, forms of resistance that you find in, in algorithmically, algorithmically managed workplaces is that they're often quite clandestine. Not always. Mm-hmm. Often quite clandestine. They often um, require the worker to have worked there a little while. So they're kind mm-hmm. of highly situated and they kind of come with experience. And uh, they're characterized by what the ancient Greeks would call metis, which is like roughly translated as cunning intelligence mm-hmm. or like a craftiness. And uh, this was like attributed to people who would maybe hunt with traps rather than sort of like you know no, noble mm-hmm. hunting on mm-hmm. horseback or whatever. It's it's kind of using your resources to to somehow uh, play a trick, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a, a trick of physics or or, or of, of you know a trick of your situation. It's very, it's highly sort of tactical. Um, and uh, th- when these kind of practices emerge, there's often sort of like solidarity. That emerges around them, you know. People understand that someone else has also found a way to make their life easier. They've found other ways to um, express their active dissatisfaction, mm-hmm. and in doing so, what what they're really doing is is, is removing cooperation from the sort of managerial order. And I think that's that's a very sort of like interesting place to look mm-hmm. as to as a, as an area of of how we can see sort of like glimmers in the algorithmic curtain. Okay, so it's not just totalizing, mm-hmm. you know. It's it's not like oh yeah, there's this actually like a kind of like secret war being waged like behind yeah, the yeah, algorithmic yeah. curtain. Um, that would be kind of highly optimistic, but we can see these glimmers, and glimmers, you know, is where we can begin to see the you know the sort of light of potential. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, I, so the other question that arises from from this conversation, I think, is in terms of you know the second part. You know of of the phrase algorithmic management, which is management, right? So, you know, here there are very obvious purposes to management, right? Like labor discipline, ensuring that, you know efficiency, etc., etc., etc. Well, that is obvious, hopefully. Um, but 
there are there have been kind of various ways in which uh, you know, left-wing thinkers in particular have thought about what management is and what it's for and how it operates, right? So what particular regime of discipline, if you will, uh, is, is imposed on, on workers. And so the classic uh, form of this is Taylorism, right? It's a managerial and productive philosophy. Um, and then you have, and so this is the kind of conventional uh, arrangement of, of a factory historically, uh, an arrangement of the labour process. And then you have uh, arguments that, that turn in the you know, beginning of the, or the sort of midpoint of the 20th century around, uh, uh, or somewhat later, around post-Fordism, identifying um, you know, a, a form of production which is not quite uh, as it had been before. Uh, and then you have you know, arguments ar- arising around sort of, uh, uh, you know, a vari- various forms of, of uh, 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 intellectual computational uh, responses to 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 production and so that that also includes the the reduction of productive processes to information uh you know or, or that are thought about in in informational terms so my question is really how does this technique or this technology of algorithmic management right uh, relate to those is it part of um, a managerial regime and what kind of managerial regime is it or is it in itself a new kind of management yeah that's really interesting so um uh, that's very big uh, yeah sorry that's very <laughs> well, I'm, I'm gonna go for it I'm just gonna go so um let's talk about taylorism and fordism yeah, post fordism yeah, yeah. and try and untangle that first and then sort of like mm-hmm. work our way up to the present and then hopefully sort of reconnect it with the yeah, first yeah, yeah. question about resistance. Uh, try. So, um, people often talk uh, about, uh, if you like, sort of like in, in industrial history in terms of these like um, like epochs or eras or sort of like waves or, or um, stages of, of development. I kind of have a problem with that. I don't really buy this idea of there being sort of like industrial divides, you know, that this is the fourth industrial revolution mm-hmm. or whatever, that we kind of have these sort of like overarching epochs. I I, I don't agree with, I'm not a structuralist, I, you mm-hmm. know, I don't agree with Origi or whatever, that you just have these sorts of like, you know, or like these sort of like Kondratiev waves mm-hmm. that like Paul Mason likes to talk, talk, talk about now where you have this, you know, these ideas are often based uh, in what like... The sort of literature would call like like a, uh, a neo schumpeterianism <laughs> which is basically that you know you might have like, like a sort of pathfinder technology or a pathfinder sector that's kind of going to break new ground, and then the other ones are, are kind of going to going to fall in line. Mm-hmm. Um, now, obviously, like these intellectual tendencies have various examples that they point to, and you know there are interesting dynamics happen there. I don't really think that we can sort of periodize like the history of work in in such a way. Um, it's very sort of neat to do so, but it's a little bit of a trick. So Fordism, you know, uh, it's not just the idea of the assembly line. The assembly lines have been around forever. Mm-hmm. The thing about Fordism is that you have a, a mechanical assembly line. So the assembly line, is, 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 as Fordism is, is not really about breaking down the tasks into small components that one, one person just does one thing. It's been around for a long time. What Fordism is really about is, is that uh, conveyor belt 
and the conveyor belt being something you can turn on and off, a manager can turn on and off, and that's going to dictate the speed at which people have to work, okay? And lots of things, like, are sort of consequent from that. But Fordism, you know, in, in the past 20 years, has been introduced to the sandwich sector, mm -hmm. you know? Um, the UK is, is a bit odd in its uh, predilection for packaged sandwiches, mm -hmm. So am I. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I'm not casting any shade. But, you know, things like sandwich production rely on, on, on Fordist innovations, whereas perhaps maybe 50 years ago they didn't. So, you know, workplace are being sort of like Fordized mm -hmm. all the time. Uh, I don't think it's referring to like a particular sort of periodization of history. So in that sense, I also have a bit of a problem with that, the idea of post-Fordism. And often these are attached to the ideas of like the decline of the factory or the decline of the mass worker. Um, there's a sort of interesting like separate history there um, that, again, I think is a little bit problematic. Obviously, like factories do exist. Things are made in factories. Uh, they're often quite small things that we mm -hmm. don't tend to think about. Like this is on a microphone stand and it's got various brackets and things and all these brackets are made in the factory somewhere. Mass production still happens. Um, the sort of era of like flexible specialization is still only really like small part of overall like production. Um, machines don't kind of work in that way and that's not really how production looks like. It's often just relocated to a different part of the world. Mm. That's all. It just happens somewhere else. Um, where was I going? I was going to uh, Taylorism, mm -hmm. which I think is something different, actually. So Fordism, post-Fordism, often talks about um, kind of like the, uh, if you like, the, the, the product. It, it's, about, it's about what the industry is sort of like making or, or, or doing, even though like properly it should refer to kind of like how a thing mm -hmm. is, is being done, like mechanically speaking. Um, Taylorism, on the other hand, is kind of more like a, like a managerial like philosophy, ethos, and sort of... Um, uh, rationale um, about solving political problems, as I would see it. Mm -hmm. um, Taylor, Frederick Winslow Taylor, he's a, a, a sort of like an industrialist um, at the turn of the 20th century. He came from a very well-heeled uh, family and his family wanted him to go to Harvard Law School where he got a place. He didn't want to. He wanted to go into engineering. They said, fine. You're not doing it with our money. And so he went to go and work for the Midvale Steel Factory and worked on the shop floor for a very short amount of time because he was picked up by the bosses and they sort of decided that he, oh, you know, you actually don't like any of these fellow workers and you <laughs> like us a whole lot more, so come and work with us. Uh, interestingly, not very interestingly, but one of the things that he uh, picked up from his time working on the shop floor was that he loved swearing. Mm. He was a man of no vices. He wouldn't even allow tobacco in his house. But in the, you know, he would go and teach at Harvard Business School and he'd be like effing and um, bird songing. <laughs> <laughs> producer just kicked into action. Bird songing his way through classes uh, in, you know, 1906 or whatever and, and, and making a sort of name for himself that way. Where was I going? So, uh, Taylor, you know, it, people often think of Taylor as being something, okay, so he uh, introduced things like piecework and. Uh, you know, pay rates that are kind of based on, uh, you know, more, more tied to, like, products of labour than just the time, amount of time you've been working, etc. But the real innovation of Taylor, I think, is um, what he called the separation of conception and execution. Mm -hmm. So the conception of work is, if you like, the 
the idea about how the work is going to be done and what's going to be done. And the execution is the doing of the work. Um, prior to Taylor, mostly, the, the general um, industrial relation, let's say, would be that uh, capitalists decide they want to invest in a particular, you know, whatever it is they're going to produce, and they hire a sort of team of workers to, uh, to come and do this work, and they will say, oh, well, we're a team of workers who can do this work, and this is how much it's going to cost you and the rest of it. And on the first page of his Principles of Scientific Management, so this is where we're going, scientific mm -hmm. management is, is his kind of, like, contribution, uh, he said, you know what the main problem with the U.S. industry is these days? It's soldiering. And soldiering is the term he gave to the um, uh, kind of, like, willful act of not really working your full capacity. There's not just laziness or idleness. It's recognizing that it's not perhaps in your interest to work quite as hard as you, you could. Mm -hmm. And that this becomes a collective endeavor. And the problem, as he saw it, for managers was that they didn't really have enough knowledge of the process of the workplace uh, to do anything about it. Because they, they, they kind of had to trust that the workers were like, well, this is just how long it, mm -hmm. it takes. And so his whole project was about scientifically, as he saw it, scientific management is a bit of a misnomer, but he called it, you know, scientifically in accordance with the principles of science, uh, rationalizing the workplace, observing the workplace, getting down and dirty, and getting out there with stopwatches in particular, so time studies, and working out uh, exactly how much people should be able to produce within a lot of time and paying them accordingly. Uh, and in so doing, uh, stripping the traditional knowledge that workers held about how to produce things, and reformulating and retabulating that knowledge into targets mm -hmm. and productivity targets, performance targets. And this was his kind of innovation. I don't think that's really gone away. Mm -hmm. Not really. Mm -hmm. I would still argue that we're broadly still within a kind of Taylorist yeah. paradigm. There are various ways that this, this happens now. And, you know, not everything that Taylor advocated for is, you know, uh, alive and well within every industry. In fact, the sort of like the golden age of scientific management, as he envisioned it, would have probably lasted, I don't know, 10 or 15 years or mm -hmm. something. But it was very sort of revolutionary at the time, sort of went around the world and, and changed in lots of ways. But I think we're still kind of operating within this Taylorist paradigm. Now, to get back to algorithmic management, what's interesting is that the... Uh, Knowledge of the productive process is kind of often um, uh, taken up by the algorithmic management system. Okay, mm. so um, the um, knowledge about what's happening in the work process and how best to organise the work process and how people should be working is being done based on real-time calculations by a big computer, mm -hmm. basically that feeds into every supervisor's work screen, you know, uh, a PC or whatever, and every worker's, you know, handset mm -hmm. device or with goggles or whatever it is. And so this enables a sort of restructuring of authority within the workplace. And uh, this is what I call like managerial distanciation. Mm -hmm. So there's both both the kind of like a... Um, uh, there's, there's sort of three things happening. There's like the physical like displacement of managers, like managers aren't quite necessary within the work process because computers are kind of there to do that job, telling people what to do and where to go. The second thing that's happening is this sort of like plausible deniability that's happening. It's like, oh, 
well, you know, you just kind of got to trust the the system. You know, it's oh, sorry, you know, it's not me making this decision. It's 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 the computer that's decided it. And to some extent, that's kind of true, but it's also like a bit of a cop out. And the third thing that's happening that relates to that is this kind of like, um, if you like, what I call like a, like an epistemological hollowing out of the kind of like intermediate managerial mm, mm, strata. Mm. Um, so like supervisors. Yeah. Were it not for the fact that supervisors still obviously maintain most workplaces a kind of like a disciplinary role or have like certain privileges over like disciplining people, uh, it might be more appropriate to think of them as subvisors. So rather than supervising workers, they're subvising the algorithmic system from below. And the role of the supervisor takes on this kind of like ecclesiastical dimension almost. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's interesting that we're talking about systems. So one of one of my uh, participants talked about how um, you know, there's this new mantra at work. It's like, just trust the system. And it's like said so often that I kind of like cross myself in Hail Mary, <laughs> like each time they say it, you know, oh, you know, wow. trust the system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and within this situation, you know, the role of supervisors becomes a bit, a bit more pastoral, ecclesiastical. It's like mm-hmm. shepherding the flock towards, uh, you know, t- 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 to serve the algorithm. Yeah, I mean, and, there is a uh, try it this way, try to it, right? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, this is this is something that that becomes so obvious, and it's not just in in the workplaces. You know, the 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 you know, the, I mean, it's a very obvious argument that you replace the word algorithm with the word God in half of these uh, <laughs> disquisitions on this stuff, and you know, there's very little material difference between the two. I mean, one of the things that that I that in fact you are you have anticipated here is the, is the sense in which there are you know, it, it does seem to me there is this kind of continual time and motion study being done, right? Mm-hmm. The, the, and it's endlessly iterative, it's endlessly repeated. And one of the things that, you know, sort of scares me in some way, right, is that in another context I was talking to, to my partner actually about um, automated facial recognition uh, and its, its role in, in uh, policing, right? Which, you know, I was saying, you know, look, it's terrifying because the law historically... Um, has functioned only insofar as it was enforceable. And there were always grey zones, there were always zones in which people can get away with, uh, you know, uh, operating just at the boundaries within... uh, And and so you can see a a possible situation in which a proliferation of law is automatically enforced far beyond the scope of what was possible within human societies previously. It seems to me that this is analogous um, to, to the desired function of these things within the workplace, which eliminate any kind of give... Uh, within a within a particular job, mm. any kind of space. Well, so that's interesting you say that because one of the areas uh, that I didn't mention before that's kind of primed for um, algorithmic management, and we're now saying it, is in law and the mm. judiciary. Mm. Precisely kind of because it's seen that, well, you know, laws are, are sort of... Um, uh, they're kind of heavily codified and qualified over time. They're... they're, they're more unambiguous than certain rules within certain workplaces, and therefore, you know, we could maybe think about automating them. Mm-hmm, so that, mm-hmm. that's the thing that exists. Um, I kind of want to uh, just uh, feeding back on this idea of sort of con- the continual time and motion study that's happening. Um, try and reconnect those those thoughts just now to how how this kind of creates space for resistance. Um, I think. Uh, one thing that's, that's 
within the history of management ideas that, that is interesting about how algorithmic management is being done is that there's also like a parallel history here of like cybernetic management. Mm. And the idea of like the, the system in a cybernetic sense is... Um, so, so cyber, cyber, cybernetics is, is, is the science of control um, and communication. And cyberneticians have worked on everything from management to biology. And early models of how the brain might work were based on cybernetic principles. So the idea of, of cybernetics is kind of how organisms or how organizations uh, kind of um, uh, regulate themselves and adapt to uh, uh, sort of inputs on their, on their system. Um, and... Why that's interesting with algorithmic management is that the computer is kind of able to do that in a very like a highly complex way uh, that doesn't really have to detour through kind of like traditional knowledge in the mm. way that we would mm. like think of of the, the knowledge that would exist in inside like workers or managers uh, you know heads or, or, or whatever um, and so you can kind of like allow this system to have its, its kind of like its own authority based on these like highly complex like series of, of calculations that are kind of always ongoing and in real time as well. Um, and I think the way that this, this creates space for resistance is because uh, the managers, quite frankly, they, they can't know everything. Mm -hmm. there's, there's a certain ontology of unknowability about it, okay? You can't sort of predict the future in, in the same way, or not at least not as well as, as a computer can. And so where workers, because they're in the work process, they're able to act in these kind of like cunning ways, uh, managers are, are kind of not present, they're distantiated mm -hmm. from, from, from the workplace, but algorithms are also not really able to respond in, in, as, in uh, adequately cunning ways to things that workers might do that are otherwise sort of unforeseen. Um, and I think this is... Yeah, this is quite an interesting mm, 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 mm. area. Yeah, I mean, so so we have not much time left. It's um, uh, just over five minutes, really. Oh. Um, and I kind of wanted to focus on, on that on that question of going forward because so we have it's becoming increasingly obvious, I think, to people on the left. And I I, I mean, not just in political parties on the left, or uh, I, I mean also in the trade unions that this is going to be a substantial problem. Right, and that, that this is going to revolutionise the way people are working. What has the left? So, small question. What has <laughs> the left uh, conceived of? Not just in 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 both forms, right? In 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 a form of kind of workplace organising, organising la organised labour, yeah. but also as a political force that might take state power. Yeah. Um, what has it been missing about the way in which these workplaces work? Uh, where could its approaches be improved? Yeah, so I think um, if you look at the way that these problems are kind of approached at the minute, there is a recognition that there's there's a, there's like a so people talk about the future world of work, and this I, when someone says the future world of work, I kind of get the sense that people have always talked about the future world mm -hmm. of work forever, so it's sort of a bit meaningless in that sense. But there is a sense that there's this kind of like impending wave of, of workplace reorganization that we've kind of got to get stuck into because workers are going to be bearing the brunt of it. Um, and you see this with the various sort of parliamentary inquiries that have been happening over the past few years. Um, I think that there's a recognition that there's a kind of like a, like a Gordian knot of concerns, like precariousness, uh, sort of bogus employment, mm -hmm. kind of getting delivery. They sort of insist that you're um, self-employed. Yeah. 
surveillance, but also kind of like tracking and, 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 and really like high levels of performance management that are quite draconian. Um, and also kind of like these scary things we call computers that we don't quite understand um, and that managers seem to understand very well. My sense is that when you look at the uh, responses to this situation, trade unions and even the kind of like more radical ones tend to respond on like the co contractual terrain. And they kind of like, the, the responses are kind of like, well, we need to, you know, uh, pay floors or we need uh, better conditions and um, as in terms and conditions mm. um, or we may, might need some like health and safety in the workplace or something but actually getting into like how the labour process is organised is not really on the table and my feeling is that that's it's kind of because the trade union movement both here and, and elsewhere around the world quite a long time ago sort of like jettisoned its like attempts to uh, talk about how you know they might otherwise control mm -hmm. the workplace, uh, or how they might reorganize reorganize things. And so, like when the bread and butter of trade union movement is kind of like paying conditions and maybe concerning technology, where it leads to redundancies, i.e., automation, mm -hmm. then those are kind of like the main pillars on which it sort of like tries to confront these things. That doesn't. I would contend that if you fixed. You know, if you had good pay, I mean, Amazon doesn't actually pay that badly. They've just had a pay increase, as you know, because of like press campaigns. Mm -hmm. But they don't really like pay that badly for you know a sort of general low wage job. But the work is brutal. There's no question about it. And you can never hit the targets, and it's got all these sort of like psychological impacts that are mm -hmm. like absolutely terrible. I think unions aren't very well poised to engage in this. What they're quite well poised to do at the minute is, is basically big sort of like press campaigns. Uh, a bit like create a moral panic around right, yeah. a particular company at a given time. And I understand that, but I think what they really need to do is connect this to the kinds of uh, resistance that are happening within the uh, within these workplaces. I know we're really short on time, so I'm going to give one example mm -hmm. in one minute. So one workplace I looked at, um, uh, often you, you well all the time basically most unions will want want recognition as yeah. as, the, as the as the thing that they have in sight. Um, but recognition deal means that they have to achieve density within the employed, directly employed workers within the workplace. But so that means they generally, from the off, marginalise the temporary workers who are agency workers because you know there's no amount of recruiting agency workers that is going to make uh, recognition be forced by the employer. Um, so obviously laws do play a part in this. But uh, uh, the temporary workers at one place I looked at uh, were, pay, were paid 70% of what uh, full-time directly employed staff were paid. And so they kind of got together in the pub after work and decided that one day they were going to uh, do a slowdown and they were going to work at 70% of capacity. And they did this. And the reason that they were... They, we've got one minute. Mm -hmm. ah! The reason that they, they knew they were working at 70% was uh, because um, they work every day with these things that tell them what their metrics are and when they're told what their metrics are every day, they have this bodily sense of what it means to work at 70% mm -hmm, of capacity. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's really interesting. Mm -hmm. And unions are nowhere in that question, but they should be. Excellent. OK, that's the place to leave it. To quote <laughs> Annie DeFranco, Antonio Negri, every tool is a weapon if you hold it right. Yay. Craig, thank you for joining me. This has been Navarra FM on Resonance 104.4 FM. We will be back at the same time in the same place next week. Goodbye. This show is brought to you by Navarra Media. To find articles, videos and more audio content like this, head to navarramedia.com.
If you've particularly enjoyed this podcast and encourage others to listen to it, why not head to iTunes and as well as subscribing, leave us a review. Navarro Media can exist only thanks to the generosity of our subscribers and supporters. If you have the means, please consider subscribing at support.navarromedia.com. As well as helping us continue to produce regular content, subscribers will also receive priority access to events, as well as promotions throughout the year. For regular updates, follow us on Facebook, Twitter and YouTube. Navarro Media, media for a different politics.